Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Of Poetry Podcasts with Amorak Huey. Amorak Huey's fourth book of poems is Dad Jokes from Late in the Patriarchy from Sundress Publications 2021. Co-author with W. Todd Kaneko of the textbook poetry a Writer's Guide and Anthology, Bloomsbury, 2018, and the chapbook Slash Slash from Diode, 2021, Huey teaches writing at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. His work has appeared in the Best American Poetry, American Poetry Review, Columbia Review, the Southern Review, the Academy of American Poets Poem a Day, and many other print and online journals. His previous books are Boombox from Sundress 2019, Seducing the Asparagus Queen from Cloudbank 2018, and Ha 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 Thump from Sundress 2015, as well as two chapbooks. Hi and welcome, Amorak. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, I, you know, something I have wanted to ask you, and I'm going to ask you this before you even read a poem is where your name comes from. Is it a family name? It is not. Um, so what the, the story, the sort of tongue in cheek response is that my parents were hippies and it was 1969. Um, oh. And so, but it's the, they, they found the name in a book. It's an Eskimo name, uh, it, Eskimo for spirit of the wolf. And so- No way. It is, it's true. Oh my goodness. I was expecting, actually, it sounds kind of, deep south to me and so I was thinking it was going to be some southern family name so that is so interesting and that's why you have a wolf on your website that is why I have wolves on my website oh and your avatar has been a wolf (laughs) yes exactly wow okay that explains a lot that is so cool (laughs) um and I'm I'm glad you had the pronunciation because I've been saying it Amarac very mm-hmm. southernly. Um, right. so. <laughs> so I definitely grew up correcting that pronunciation. And yes. sometimes I, I just let it go. But yeah. Yes. And it comes up in your poems too, which I really love when you name yourself. <laughs> um, would you like to start us off by reading a poem? Absolutely. Um, so the first poem I'll read, it, it's this poem called Looking at Men. And it's after a poem by Ileana Rocha, who is a, a great poet. And she has a poem called Looking at Women. And my poem's not all that much like hers, but it definitely started, I mean, I took the title and sort of uh, went in a different direction, but I was grateful to her for the inspiration. So this is looking at men. The world teaches us there's nothing to see here, only everything that matters. The world teaches us to fear what desires us, a matter of survival. The world's pedagogy has not evolved lately, All armpit hair and biceps and bigger is better. Doesn't matter if a man's wearing a three-piece that costs more than your car or a neon vest or a prison jumpsuit, he has a right to the space you occupy. A memory, junior high baseball tryouts, this boy making fun of my name. He was a running back and special team star, fast and strong and angry all the time, popular and dangerous. He'd die of heart failure at 42, but of course we didn't know that. On this day, all that mattered was that we both knew he would be the starting center fielder once he'd finished shredding me. It's how things work, how they have always worked. When I tried ignoring him, willing myself invisible and mute, he dropped his glove and jogged toward me, spitting profanity. We were boys. But he saw what it meant to be a man, flex, and sorry, he saw what it meant to be a man, no problem aggression can't solve, flex and fist, cock and rock and stomp out weakness. I did not make the team that year or the next. In porn, the men are supposed to be invisible. Who wants to focus on that dangle and flop and hairy flesh? Women are the centerpiece, and yet it is the men whose pleasure matters whose erection lets us know when it's time to begin, whose ejaculation lets us know what success looks like. This is what the world teaches us, and I'm exempt from nothing. I love muscles swelling under sleeves. A beer gut means you make the rules. Hairy forearms are a ticket to all the back rooms in all the land. 
another junior high memory, selecting the yearbook, who's who, most likely to, and all that. Asked to vote for best looking guy, I picked the starting quarterback, a dark haired boy who treated me with contempt. He was taller than I, stronger, a better athlete, at ease on the planet. Once I sat behind him in the bleachers at a high school game while he made out with a dance squad girl. She caught me watching, smirked, do you have a problem? Well, sure, who doesn't? But of course I said nothing, looked away, chastened and hungry. It was her I wanted, but him I envied. There is zero chance this man remembers me, but here I am. Not being him still shapes what I think of myself. I cannot believe how stupid I am. I cannot believe I'm more than halfway through with this life and still molded out of ninth grade humiliations. I do not dare to admit weakness. I cannot tell the truth about want. I am not this body. I am not this sex. I am not strong enough to be anything else. So I guess that's a place to start. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, those last three lines, I like put a big heart and a parentheses <laughs> by, and I wrote, woo. Um, <laughs> incredible. I think you do so much astounding work in this book in terms of American myth and family and how narratives are made. Um, and I mean, I was thinking about dad jokes this morning and how it's on the one hand, a, a book for readers who like Mad Men and WandaVision <laughs> and their own family photos. And then I was like, oh, those are those are pretty white examples. And so then I was like, wow, this book really does engage um, white America in a very like head on and direct. And it, it feels like a very honest voice um, throughout. And part of that's like the self-deprecation um, but also just kind of the way, you know, it's, I don't know, dad jokes as like a phenomenon are, aren't about discomfort often. Like there's almost like a comfort element to them because they, the way they play out, but you're okay. You're totally okay with discomfort and keeping your reader kind of on that edge where they're like, where's this poem going? Like, how are you engaging these narratives of patriarchy and masculinity and, you know, expectations of gender for our kids and ourselves. And um, anyways, those are some of the things I've been thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that. I'm glad that you see the book as engaging with whiteness because I, I, so I, one of my worries about the book is that it doesn't engage directly enough with whiteness. I mean, I think it, I feel like it's implicit in what I was trying to do, but then sometimes I, I worry, did I not, did I not do enough? Did I not, did I over rely on my assumptions as a white person and not make it explicit enough that I'm challenging that. So I'm glad that at least a, a little bit of that might come through in the poems that I am trying to engage, trying to be, you know, I mean, that I think white poets need to engage with, with whiteness and with race. And um, I don't know that I do a good enough job of that, but I'm trying to. Yeah, I think it's really, you know, it sounds like such an abstract um, whiteness. And it sounds like something that's really difficult to engage. And, you know, as with most craft things, it's all about particularity and particular narratives. And um, just, I mean, it's like when you learn to think about gender, you're learning how to think abstractly about something that's a lived experience. Um, so it is walking this tricky line, but I think you do so much work. You know, there's that phrase, like the poet, teach, I don't know who said it first, like who, who knows, but the poet teaches you how to read their poems, right? right. Um, and they're one of the best critics. And so when you've got, you know, your prose poems, which you're so good at your prose poems too. Um, and you've got, you know, several poems that have the titles of, of television characters like Ward Cleaver and Matt. Mike Brady and Fred McMurray and Dick Van Patten. And I don't even as a reader have to know every single 
one of those, for instance, I only know Ward Cleaver and Mike Brady, and I'm able to think about the kind of American family they're setting up, right? Right. Um, so you're grouping the way you're doing that kind of theoretical grouping that's also very particular, and you're helping your reader like see this image you're creating um, by bouncing among multiple characters. And I think that's really powerful and really persuasive. Um, and you know, it's, it's, again, it's like showing the forms in our society that maybe we're not thinking about or. Right. I mean, all of those TV dads and, mm-hmm. and they're white, they're all white. Right. Yeah. And like, but that was, and I, you know, my, my family, I mean, we talked, when you asked about my name, my, my joke was that my parents were hippies, but they, they, we, I didn't, I don't feel like I had a typical I did not have the, t- the upbringing that you see on TV, right? But we were not like that. I didn't, my family didn't have a television until I was 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. But still, even without like direct access to all those things, that those role models, those ideas of what it meant to be a father, what it meant to be a man, they were just infused in the culture. And so I'd be at a, my friend's houses and TV would be on. And I, I didn't even watch my two dads. I didn't even watch Eight is Enough, really. It was just in the culture. It was in the Mm -hmm. air. And so I was absorbing these lessons about what I was supposed to be. And because we grew up, because I felt like I was growing up, um, I grew up in this farm and my, and this idea of we're trying to find our own place in society um, and make our own life. And, but, but I was always like looking at what I thought you were supposed to be looking at, you know, what, how it was, how you were supposed to be a boy, how you're supposed to be a man, how you're supposed to be a father and absorbing these things, even though I don't, didn't really even want to, it was just there. And so I think it's ever present in the message that we receive from our culture, no matter how hard your family might try to avoid it. Yes. There's a phrase that I really, it really annoyed me during graduate school um, at Duke, but I had several professors who, who loved to use it, master narratives. And, you know, it's a way of looking at these kind of historical, you know, um, big sweeping, you know, culture forming, society moving um, narratives. And I mean, those, everyone has narratives like that in their life. And I, I think it's so incredible that you bring up like not having a TV and yet the things that are in the air around us, right. And how persuasive and informative they are. I mean, I think of how my parents were, um, they were like really concerned, right. When uh, queer characters came on TV and suddenly that was like, what? No. <laughs> right. Because visibility is things you're going to talk about. It's people and lifestyles you're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, part of the work of dad jokes that is bringing those out. Um, okay. So now that we've talked a little about TV dads. Um, I am so interested in your relationship to um, Odysseus and you've written multiple poems, right? On Odysseus and and does Telemachus come up or, um, and you had one of your poems appeared in a really cool anthology. You want to mention that? Yeah, the, um, the, the, in, uh, we were all Odysseus in those days poem was, it's, it's actually in, um, the Emily, the Norton critical edition of Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, which I think is like one of the coolest things that's ever happened <laughs> to me as a writer. I mean, so amazing, it, you know, and the part of it is because the tradition of Odysseus is not, I mean, Homer is not necessarily one person, right? Homer is a collective of poets who, t- who are say, keeping the story alive. And then when it became written down, it was attributed to someone named Homer who may or may not have been an individual. And so like Odysseus is collective poetry in it, in it at its heart and so for my story my poem to be even like tangentially a part of that tradition mm-hmm. is is really cool um and emily wilson's translation of the odyssey i it's such a brilliant translation um because it's the language is so contemporary and yet it preserves what's i mean i love that story i love her translation of it i love the story before i read her translation um and i think that this idea of Preserving that story and making it accessible to an audience in 2021 is such a cool feat that she's accomplished. My daughter is a freshman in college and she uh, she read the Emily Wilson translation in her freshman honor seminar like two, you know, two weeks ago. I'm like, that is so 
great. And uh, she had read it in high school and didn't like it and didn't have fond memories of it. And then she read Emily Wilson's translation and like it changed the story for her because it wow. made it, it opened it up for her. And so I love that story. I, I, it's an adventure story. I like adventure stories. I like sweeping narratives. I like origin stories. So there's just so much that I'm drawn to in that story. And so it does, of course, it comes back to my own sense of what narrative is and what storytelling is. And then thinking about thinking about Odysseus as a role model in the way that I'm thinking about, you know, George Jetson or, you know, Ward Cleaver as role models and thinking about what that means. And so that's what I'm trying to do in that story and that's in that poem. And I think that poem is, it's sort of about my grandparents, my grandfathers. Um, like the, the figure in that poem is a soldier who comes back from a war and is like makes a life for himself and doesn't speak about the war. And Odysseus is his favorite uh, narrative, his favorite story. And it's not, the, the figure is really neither of my grandfathers, but also sort of both because they were both in World War II. Um, I have an uncle who was in, you know, in, in the um, Navy during the Vietnam era. And so I'm thinking about these role models, for these male figures in my own life coming back from times of conflict or war. And how much do you talk about? How much do you not talk about? How much, how much of that do you carry with you? Um, and so that's what, thinking about that and then using Odysseus as a way to frame that about how you, Odysseus is trying to get home. He's trying to go home for most of that epic. And uh, so I loved using that as a, a way into thinking about more current stories, more stories that are closer to my own life. Yeah, that's, oh, it's so incredible to think about. And when you were talking, you know, I just, you know, Odysseus and Telemachus and um, Penelope are in some ways kind of a nuclear family. And, <laughs> um, but there's such a powerful myth in terms of gender and, um, you know, indi- like existentialism, not in existentialism, I didn't mean to say that, but um, like individualism and um, journeys and community, it's got so much in it um, and war and it's interesting because like all the 50s, 60s TV dads, I mean, the, their quintessential environment is at home and it's so focused on the domestic. Um, and it's, I mean, those are, you know, these big threads in literature, you know, this. And when, when I think about like the Arthurian legends and it's when a knight is um, when a knight gets too comfortable and happy at home, typically with his like paramour or his, uh, you know, person he's with, not necessarily a wife, but when he doesn't want to get up and go questing, like that's when a problem happens when, when he's too right. homebound. Um, so that there's this, you know, this myth of like the American home is like the place of comfort, with the grill in the backyard and the plaid shirts and the lawn chairs. Like we know it, it's so mythic. Um, even though many of us did not have that kind of upbringing, it's still, that myth is still very present. Um, but it's really interesting to think about. I just, and maybe in my head, I just thought you wrote multiple Odysseus poems. Maybe I'd multiplied them. Um, but that's an incredible poem and it's a really interesting presence in dad jokes. Um, and yeah, I think it just does some of the, it, it kind of troubles Right. I think it troubles the kind of easy narratives um, and introduces its own set of archetypes and so on. Yeah. I mean, I think that like the male figure, the dad, like is often absent from the domestic and their role in the domestic is to return to it, to show mm-hmm. up, come home at the end of the day and solve mm-hmm. the problems that have arisen during the day. Like mm-hmm. thinking about Ward Cleaver, like he comes home from work and everybody rushes to the front door to tell him what's going wrong. And then he he's wise and calm and, and, and disciplinarian and he fixes the problem. And I think that, that, yes. that idea and Adrian Rich has this poem that um, I believe is called uh, Amnesia and it's about Citizen Kane. And at the end um, she, it's talking about Charles Kane and his, but his relationship with his mother. And she's talking about how the stories we tell are about Charles Kane going off to live his life and, and become a man of industry and, and, and um, have these adventures. But why don't, and I think the last line is something about, it's about the snow settling on the sled at the end of Citizen Kane and talking about how we never tell the stories about what's left behind, like what's happening at home while mm. the father is off having these adventures. And of yeah. course, 
you know, she's reclaiming the, the, the role of the feminine, the role of women in, the, in that domestic you know, scene that we're talking about, right? And that poem was, has been super influential to me too, thinking about like ways of troubling how we approach those stories. That's incredible. I need to go back and, and read this poem. What's the title again? Did you say Amnesia? Amnesia. Okay. And it's, in, it's, it's a poem that it's not widely, like it, it doesn't get a lot of attention. And I'm not sure that it's easy to find online. I, it's in one copy of her collected poems that I have, but it's not in the next edition of the same book. Oh, weird. And so I'm like, why is this poem disappearing? It's my, one of my favorite poems. Oh, that's so, weird in its own right. Um, I have yeah. a, I've read Lord's Collected. Um, but I, I don't remember. So I it's rich. It's, I oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Adrian Rich. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll have to go look. I'll have to go look and see. Yeah, what I'll, I have. I'll, have, I'll track it down for you if, if you can't find it. So interesting. Huh. Um, so since you've brought up disappearing and absent dads, um, would you mind reading Elegy for Dr. Spock on page huh. 34? Certainly. Elegy for Dr. Spock. My parents grew up wanting to be told they were loved. I wanted air conditioning and a store-bought haircut. I guess everyone's childhood is fucked. The current president is president of all of us because his father was an approval withholding asshole. The previous president's father abandoned him early. The president before that was the son of a goddamn president. How unfair is that to everyone involved? The president before that, another absent father. What the hell do we do to our sons? For years, American parents were told not to hug their boy children after they turned five. I like to think I've already 86 my son's chances of ruling the free world someday, but the moral arc of the patriarchy is long and bends toward most of the damage has already been done. Thanks, that was just so um, perfect. And so one of the concepts that was popping into my mind when you were talking earlier is nostalgia that, you know, that's, um, kind of a harmful form of American nostalgia that you engage. Um, and one of those things we get nostalgic about is success. And when you take apart a, how, you know, male, obviously the role of the president is in the United States, but when you take it apart as family, um, rather than, you know, like we just think like, oh, president success, president success. And when you're like, well, what about the families? And you look at that and you see this incredible disparity. Um, and suddenly the people start looking really different. Um, and then I really love too um, the grammar of the last line, which is like, I just think that like the troubling work this poem is doing, um, but the moral arc of the patriarchy is long and bends toward, you know, it's not like the fact that most of the damage has been already done, right? Uh, there's something weird there. It bends toward most of the damage. It sounds like two sentences have been mashed up, right? Um, <laughs> And that's so, so brilliant there. Well, I'm like, thank you for saying that because I, I'm super fond of the grammar at the end of that sentence. Okay. Actually, when I went through this book with my editor, they had suggested revising it towards bends toward most of the damage already done. So it'd be um, grammatically correct. Yeah. And I, I said, no, I said, I don't yeah. want to. I like the fact that it forces you to, that, forces you to figure out what it's saying there. And I like this using an independent clause as the object, which you can't grammatically can't do. And so I, I am fond of that and I'm glad that it's working. Oh, good. It makes me really <laughs> happy that you called it out. Good. It me, I feel validated in my choice to resist. It yes. Yes. No, I think that, you know, that's really smart. I'm glad you stuck to your guns, which can be hard to do sometimes. Um, when you're, you know, doing collaborative editing and you want, you know, you do want to listen to your editor and you don't want to make your reader like trip in a bad way, but I think this is a trip in a good way. Right. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, my editor was great. Jeremy, Michael Reed at Sundress. We had a great experience. That was just one where he was just going through and think, what, what yeah. if we do? I'm like, no, I, I, 
I want the grammar there to be troubling. I want the syntax to be kind of impossible. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Um, I know. And it's even like, I mean, having a great editor who, if you're like, you know, like no stat, like this stays or whatever, I've never had any, like, I've never, no editors ever like wrestled with me over something, but even the fact of having, I don't know, I don't, maybe that's just me, but even just having to assert yourself a little bit, I always feel like, like that's hard um, to push back at all. Like, um, but um, who was it? I heard Jeff Schatz from Grey Wolf. He said that if, um, I don't, and I'm not sure he put a percentage on this, but like if a writer doesn't give a decent amount of pushback on suggested edits, he feels like they don't know their own voice. I can and see they, that. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. You don't want to just be like, yeah, accept all your edits. Like that you want right. there to be things that you're like, no, this is me. <laughs> this right, is the right. poem. Yeah. I mean, as a, like, as an approval seeking older child, it is definitely my instinct to say, <laughs> yes, I will do what you want because it makes you happy. But like, yeah. yeah. And of course his editorial suggestions overall, like it really, he made the book better, but I, there was, there were places and I'm like, and of course this is, you know, this is my fourth book. I've gotten better at like, knowing what's important to me and knowing what I can just let go of. Mm -hmm. um, there, there, you don't get a lot of edits with poems in journals every once in a while you do. Yeah. And often the stuff, it's stuff that I can just let go of because I don't, it's not what's important to me, but then yeah. sometimes you hit, they hit something I'm like, no, this is how I want the poem to be, you know? Yeah. Would you like to read your poem? Pastoral with Rosé. Sure. This is another poem about what's in the air in my childhood <laughs> on TV. Pastoral with Rosé. I assume my life remains on a trajectory toward a 1983 Reuniti on Ice commercial. Shrimp cocktail and chilled sweet wine on a patio with a crowd of well-dressed friends. These beautiful people what having money must look like. I imagined the jokes I would make, how they would earn me praise from the assembled wives and husbands. I imagined myself easy to envy. To be happy ought to be enough. It is not. One must be seen being happy. One's happiness, the sort of thing that sparks arguments between couples on their drives home, neither of them honest about the source of the irritation as they bicker and fall quiet their silence in the darkness, a kind of privacy. I am entirely invested in this non-existent Amorak. I imagine him lingering outside long after everyone has left as cigar smoke and perfume melt into the dust and ice fades to water in copper buckets. Chorus frogs, fireflies. I imagine him lonely. I pity him, though surely he has more sex than I do has hair he doesn't have to think about, a slimmer waist, stronger calves. The moon rises, he vanishes. I am left to wonder how he pronounces our name. Is it the same? Or have I been saying it wrong all these years, every version of myself in disarray, even on my own tongue? Thank you. Um... I love that. And part of the origin of the story of this poem goes back to the name thing where my parents found the name in a book, the book Never Cry Wolf by Farley Mowat. And of course, from a book, there's no pronunciation. And so I, I think we actually do pronounce it wrong. <laughs> we don't, we definitely do not pronounce it as the Native Americans whose language it is would, would pronounce it. And so thinking about that the awkwardness of that, how this is my name now and I can't pronounce it differently, but it's not, it, it has lost its connection to the original meaning because we don't pronounce it the same way. And I'm not even sure how, how exactly, I've seen it pronounced in movies before. They made a, Disney made a movie of Never Cry Wolf um, and they, they pronounce it very differently. Um, and just the, act, the emphasis is in a different place. And yet it's too late now. This is how, this is my name and this is how I pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah, I have a brother like that with a name, even like, even when it occurs in your family tree, like if it's not, <laughs> if it's not spoken anymore. Right. Um, so interesting. Um, I think that 
a some of the stuff this poem's doing with the idea of happiness um in a way that's both quintessentially american um and again once again thinking about success and property and neighbors but also in a way that really i mean i'm an aristotle fan so um you know like those that beautiful line which to me is like really rewrites aristotle um is one must be seen being happy right because he thought you know the nicomachean ethics you need to you you can't say a person is happy while they're alive they need to die and then it's your friends whether you were happy or not like were they happy was it more happy yeah um and that being seen i think especially having you know as we've been the last year and a half through pandemic right like what's it mean to be seen um what's that do to people's you know, gender presentation, so due to your, you know, caretaking presentations and your practicalities and your labor. And um, these are all just really big questions um, that obviously not only writers are, are dealing with. Um, it also, what with the mistrust of self and name or like the doubt, maybe it's more like a doubt more than mistrust um, that comes up in your work. And it I remembered what I was trying to think of earlier when we were talking about editing a voice um, is that you have such a unique voice. Um, and I was wondering to myself, who are some of your influences? And I think it was earlier this summer when I was reading James Tate and I was like, Oh wait, maybe Tate is an influence for Amorak because he's got some of like the humor and the wryness and kind of like the really honest storytelling you like want to listen to. And um, I mean, I think you just have such a, such an incredible, like one of the most unique voices. So I'd love to hear influences or, or your response to that. Yeah. I mean, I would not say, I say I would not actually count James Tate as an influence. I have read James Tate's work, but I haven't spent a lot of time with it. Um, the humor and the the storytelling, I think a lot of that comes from David Kirby, um, who was, I took, uh, right out of undergraduate, I started graduate school in creative writing, and it didn't take, and I didn't finish, and had to go back late, years later and finish, but I went to Florida State right out of undergrad and took uh, a workshop, or maybe two workshops with David Kirby, who is funny, and storytelling, and his poems are I don't think my voice is exactly like his. His poems are, are very long and very narrative and, and associative. And, but he, it gave me permission to, be, to try to be funny in, in poems, right? And to think about, to look for humor, I guess, not as jokes, but as, as wit, right? Mm. As, as incisive, humor with a purpose, right? That's not just, I'm going to make jokes, haha. It's not stand-up comedy. I mean, stand-up comedy is not just jokes either, but it's I'm not up here to to be a clown I'm up here to be a fool right a fool mm-hmm. in the sense of like someone who's sat, satirizing the king who's got yeah. a, who's got an edge to his um to or her wit yeah. and there's that's making a point and so Kirby definitely I think um so the, and then though the, that Raymond Carver is not it's fashion it's not fashionable to like Raymond Carver's poetry but it, oh. I I discovered it. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. I've heard a lot of people criticize his poetry as being overly sentimental and kind of uh, not very sophisticated. Interesting. But I discovered it at a time when it was when I was a, a young writer and I, I guess I needed that permission to be sort of honest about sentimentality. Mm-hmm. That, like, to like to be, and again, this is a, it's another white man, right? Who, but he's, he's willing to be, vulnerable on the page and to expose some of the the flaws behind sort of like trying to live up to masculinity and not in a Bukowski way in a sort of I'm yeah. reveling you know <laughs> right reveling in my like debauchery kind of way uh-huh. that I studied Bukowski I had a class in Bukowski in grad school a whole like, class uh most of a class yeah because Western oh. Michigan has his papers and I don't remember oh, why they have his papers interesting we spent a long time reading um Bukowski and like we actually got to look at some of his papers that's cool but I and so like there's I would not count Bukowski as an influence either even though there's there's something there there's something interesting about the way he uses black humor but the way he writes about masculinity isn't all that interesting to me because I don't think it's very critical 
Um, Rich, yeah. you talked about Rich was an important poet to me young mm. when I was young. Jory Graham, who I don't think I write like in the least. No, wow. <laughs> That's cool. I go back to Jory Graham's use of language over and over. Mm. Like it's it I yeah, I can't can't do it, don't want to do it, don't write like that. And yet I think it's it infuses how I think about the sentence. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. It's also really interesting to me that Jory Graham really likes James Tate's work. So maybe, so maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm a, a grandchild in, in Tate. That's so interesting. Those are really cool to hear. I, I've always seen um, Raymond Carver's poems shared, like, I don't, I've always seen like a lot of respect. Um, and I know there are a bunch of people at Duke who like his prose. Um, it's always interesting to me when, um, I don't know, there's like the work and then there's the way you're supposed to read it. Right. And like, sometimes people like to tell you like, oh, well, they're not very good or like, oh, they're too sentimental. Or, I mean, I remember having this, you know, master's spoon river anthology and I just heard about it and I just gotten a copy. It was during my MFA and I was still really, really searching for who my role models were. And I didn't discover CD right till much later. And that's when I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, But I got the Spoon River Anthology and one of my professors who's a very kind person was like, oh, that's, you know, that's known to me, not very good. And I was like, oh, and then, you know, then the wind comes out of your sails and you don't want to really read something. And you're like, I just got this book. (laughs) What a damaging, I mean, and I've heard similar things about similar in similar situations, but what a damaging thing to say to a young reader. Like, yeah, you know, as if it, it's just about and teaching should never be about closing down paths. It should be about yeah. opening up. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I remember when Mary Oliver died and of course everyone starts mm. sharing her poems on social media. And a friend of mine, who's a, a fiction writer said, I didn't know people like Mary Oliver. I thought you poets didn't like her because it was sort totally. of unfashionable to like Mary Oliver because mm-hmm. she's, too naturey, I guess, or too sentimental again. I don't, and of course, I think she's been reclaimed by poetry since she died, but it, I definitely get where that person was coming from. I, but I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I like Mary Oliver. And so, but I do, I guess I see like there was, a, it was uncool to like Mary Oliver for a while. Yeah, totally. Um, I remember being told she was the most read poet from the pulpit. Or, uh, I really want to know how people knew that, but exactly. For me, like a little Oliver goes a long way. Um, but, you know, I was in an MFA program and had to read someone, you know, everyone on this list, you had to read their complete work. So it probably wasn't just the best way to be reading anybody anyway. Um, right. I mean, it's a good practice to read, but maybe not so quickly or whatever. Um But at the same time, Mary Oliver's voice is, um, I would say that style of voice. And I think it's owed a lot to Oliver is so predominant right now, like in American poetry, if you pick up any journal, you can find multiple poems that are trying to sound like Mary Oliver, Um, maybe like a little more cynical and maybe more like rough around the edges or something, but um, that kind of American can in some ways confessional even though it's something different right it's something different with Oliver right I mean it's yeah they're they're writing like Mary Oliver but they're writing about pop culture instead of you know or some they're they're not writing about trees and flowers they're writing and not to reduce Mary Oliver to trees and flowers but she's obviously she's interested in nature but they're even unconsciously perhaps they're they're using her observation style and her form to write about WandaVision or whatever, right? Yeah. And like, yeah. okay, like here's an anthology of poems about a certain TV show or whatever. And and like that's really just Mary Oliver, except applied to a different situation. Yeah, exactly. And even if they haven't been Mary Oliver readers, you know, I think that's what we talk about when we, you know, use the phrase zeitgeist, like you're tapping into something you don't even re- and again coming back to that the idea of narratives that you don't realize you're participating in, um, which is 
frankly, I don't know why MFA keeps coming up in my mouth lately <laughs> on this podcast, but you know, during the, my MFA, that's something that really bothered me when I would see someone appear, write a poem and they'd be like, this poem's all about the dichotomy of faith and doubt. And they would act like they just invented that dichotomy. And <laughs> it was like, I was like, haven't you read like a little Augustine or anything to, because right. there's stuff there's, there's so much behind that. And don't you want to, as a poet and a reader, like tap into that. And there's a lot of frankly gatekeeping and stuff that, that keeps people. I mean, one of the biggest moments of my life was realizing I could read any book I wanted, even though I'd been taught like, uh, you're a girl, you probably don't want to read, um, Aquinas. Like you don't want to read, uh, Aristotle. And, And in fact I did, those are who I wanted to spend time with. Um, and so learning that as a graduate student, that was just, I mean, that was huge. And I think there's so much of that around, um, but it's, poets get to do it all, right? Like we get to right. read it I mean, all. Yeah, there are, there are no guilty pleasure reads. There are no forbidden reads. You read what you want and you, yeah. and it, it's going to change over the course of your life and it's going to uh, change from day to day. And I, one of my favorite authors is John Sanford, who writes best-selling detective cop novels oh and, wow and mm-hmm. i just i i think he is <laughs> his he's so good at making his his prose is like i would describe it as almost immaculate invisible like wow he, his writing just gets out of the way of the story mm. and the story is all forward momentum and murder and mystery solving and the cop is like this sort of stereotypical in some ways bruising smart smartest guy in the room, but also mm-hmm. uses fists if he needs to, to solve a problem. And they're like, the, I'm, I'm, if when I describe it, it doesn't sound like something that I would be interested in. And yet mm-hmm. I read his books as soon as they come out multiple times. Mm-hmm. And so, and the, I, you're not, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's just a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, it reminds me that one of my favorite novelists, Iris Murdoch, um, <laughs> One of the books she has characters like read and drop in the trash and stuff all the time or like detective novels and it like cracks me up because um, <laughs> I've never read her any of her opinions on that it's just one of those things I mean she's also very self-deprecating and and has you know multiple scenes where like books that are very similar to hers get like shredded or torn up or destroyed <laughs> by a friend who was like I was just saving you from yourself and your terrible philosophical novel saying you were writing <laughs> It's really funny. Um, But yeah, um, having, you know, it's, I think it's really interesting what you say about language that gets like when the language gets out of the way, right? The writing gets out of the way and and recedes. And I almost think that's something really cool that you do in your poems. um, That there's this, I mean, there's that, that whole idea of, working really hard to make something seem simple, you know, dancers doing the most work in a leap to make that leap look like weightless. Right. right. Um, and you've got a lot of that. And I know it comes about through hard work and that's it. Um, but in your poems, which by the way, I always think of you as a column poet. Um, and I personally adore column poems, which man, I sound so boring when I say that, but I love, I don't know. There's something about a column poem for a narrative. In fact, now it makes me think of like the Odyssey and um, I mean, epics and things really, you know, if you're comfortable reading a column of poetry, you can read epics and everything else. Um, But I do think of you as like working really, really well. And I mean, your prose poems are also fantastic, but um, yeah, I think of that as an Amorak Huey form. Yeah, I mean, this book definitely is, I was like, I'm, I'm just, these are just walls of text. I mean, not all of them, but I, 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 I kind of got, at some point I was like, I felt the stanza was a kind of artifice that I wasn't interested in exploring at this moment. And I, I mean, and that's not a universal truth. It's just where I was in my creative life at that moment. I'm like, I'm not interested in trying to create the, the particular kind of order or appearance of order that stands as lend to a poem, I just want this poem to exist on the page. And is it, do some readers find that challenging to like the column of text that is 
and the lines go halfway across the page. It's a lot, right? And there's no breaks and there's no handholding to where you can pause. And so, but I was just like, this is where I feel drawn right now in my in my writing life. And I'm not because some of these I tried like column breaks and like I mean stanza breaks and like I it feels fake to me right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to do something else and I'm just going to write these column poems. It's okay. so in, yeah, I'd love that you bring up stanzas because um, I mean, when it's a narrative, right. And it's, it's about an unbroken narrative. It's about having thoughts that can shift into other thoughts. And like a column poem can be very transformative from like point A to Z or wherever you're going. Um, and it's also, I mean, there's a reason epic poets, you know, write and continuous, right? Like you can keep going and it's like um, a propulsion and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost, I remember professors being like, it's almost the trouble of like where to end, like in when you're writing a longer poem where you're writing it. I, I'm one of those people who really loves to end things. So I'm almost trying to end it. As soon as I'm in the poem, I'm like, where can I end? I want to get out of here. <laughs> Right. So opposite problem. <laughs> but yeah, that's really interesting to think about, especially when, you know, like even even in your title, the idea of a joke is something you relate. It's something you tell someone else. It's about conversation. It's about engagement. And um, so there's something about that spokenness in it as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because my what I've been working on recently um, I've been writing short poems with uh, like really short poems, like some two line poems and some four line mm-hmm. poems. And so I, I, it took like, I've not that I'm done with the column poem, but that I've moved for now, I've moved in a different direction. And so I felt like I, I, I tried that for a while and now I'm trying something different. And that my mm-hmm. new poems are much, they're more, they're less pop culture-y, they're less narrative. Mm. And shorter and more internal lyric poems and oh my I, goodness I know it's very different <laughs> <laughs> it's like the new project is really not the same as oh, anything I've done before that's so cool. it's kind of fun yeah that's really exciting do you have a favorite um I think of A.R. Ammons right away do you have a favorite like short poet that you think of you like um, IQ or uh, try to think one I don't know if I have a favorite short poet I've been reading a lot of short poems but not by anyone in particular mm. um, Wanda Coleman has a lot of short mm. poems and a, and a lot of her poems are also often posted in, in excerpt form like because they're, 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 they're stanzas that people can pull out and screenshot and so I'm interested in the way she uses sort of aphoristic moments in her poems whether the poem itself is, is longer there's all these moments in her poems that are aphoristic. Um, mm. Audre Lorde a little bit does some of the, some similar things and some strangeness in uh, these, these strange self-contained moments, either that are the poem or that are within longer poems that, that I'm, I'm interested in how she's doing that. So those are who I've been sort of looking at most recently. That's so cool. And it's also really cool to, I mean, you know what you do really well at this point, like when you've, you know, this is your fourth book, you know, so, you know, I mean, I always had professors that would talk about like, like Eric Pinky would be like, you know, sometimes I think I'm going to do something new and a poem. And then it turns out, no, it's just an Eric Pinky poem. (laughs) (laughs) He's very modest and wonderful as a person. Um, But there is an element, right. When you're like, Oh yeah, I'm writing a Han Vanderhart poem. I'm I know what I'm doing here, and so if you can kind of put aside the comfort of knowing what you do, you know, pretty well, and try something new and radical, I think that's a really good challenge. Because half the time, like I'm I'm working on this new manuscript where I'm intentionally trying to be messier and bigger and and not make things conform and. It's, mm-hmm. it's scary. And I also know they're not as good as what I usually write. And I'm like, uh, which means they'll just take more work. Um, but it's good to do. I do think it's good to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I didn't, I, I so I, I, this book felt like, and this is a mistake that 
it was, a, it was sort of a mistake that I made and as in my creative life it was like when I finished this book I thought I I really am proud of this book and it felt like a stopping place and then then I went through like this sort of dry spell this this period where I wasn't where everything I don't know I didn't know what to do next and I realized that I wasn't done writing poems about like being a dad about some of the so some of my some poems that are like that have come out recently that are post book are still like they could be in the book. Um, then so I wasn't done with that topic yet. And so I had to give myself permission to continue writing poems that could have fit in the book if I had written them, you know, a year earlier. But then al almost as soon as I did that, then I was able to write a few more poems in that vein and then move on to something different. Mm -hmm. And so I, mm -hmm. I needed this like, and it, there's the, the moral of the story for me is like, never think of like, these books as stopping points in your creative life yes because it's just it's the book is an arbitrary time mm -hmm. period right? totally. it's not these aren't just all the poems that i wrote between 2016 and 2020 mm -hmm. but that's a lot of it that's yeah. a lot of how this book came to be okay. and um and so you if you but if you think oh i'm done with this but your creative side is like no you're not done with this and of course i'm not done writing about being a dad I'm still a dad. I'm always going to be a dad. I'm always good. That's always going to be part of my, you know, creative life. And like, I should be able to go to that well whenever I want, even if I've already written the book about it. Mm. And so mm -hmm. like, and then realizing, okay, I need to go back and reopen that door. And if I want to go through that and write poems that would have fit in the book that may never now be in a book because I'm, that this would have been the book for them to be in. That's okay. Um, I'm not really a book poet. I'm a one poem at a time poet. I don't really work on projects, um, which can create problems when it's time to put together a manuscript. Um, it takes, it's very late in the process before I figure out what unites the, these poems. Um, and so, and I often have, I write way more poems and many poems come out because they just don't fit anymore. They don't fit anywhere in any book. I, you know, if I'm ever famous enough to have a collective there will be a bunch of uncollected poems that appeared in journals, but they didn't ever make it into a book because they didn't fit the project because I don't really, I sort of envy poems with poets who are project poets. And I'm, that is not really my style. Yeah. It's, I, I really like what you're saying about the kind of arbitrary markers of having books. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard poets say like, you know, I was writing and then, then I realized, no, that was part of my last book. Um, <laughs> and that always seemed to me unsatisfactory, um, that, you know, if you're interested in something, you're interested in something. And, right. um, like I thought maybe like with what Pecan light, I was like, okay, I did my Southern book. I'm done. Um, now I'm going to write a poem. Well, I had like another book after that, which is done. But then I was like this third book, this is all about art and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to have as much fun as I want doing high art and phrases. And sure enough, like I end up writing about like Sally Mann's photographs or I end up, you know, like this, like the Southern stuff just kept coming in. And, and then I'm like, oh, well, I guess this is part of just me at this point and life. And it's I let it in, like, just let it in. And, um, because if you're, and I, I think that's something like your obsessions are just so important, um, and part of, you know, being your weird best or yeah, this I mean, particular I, self. You can't, I don't think we can tell ourselves what we can't, what we're not going to, what we're done writing about. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> like, you're, you're the, when you sit down at the page, like, no, I'm not, I'm not done. I'm, mm -hmm. I've not figured this out yet. Right. And so much of writing a poem is trying to figure out what's the unfigure outable, trying yeah. to make sense of the world that you, that can't be made sense of. And so if you could finish it, if a, if you wrote a poem and solved it, like I, that, then you weren't taking on a big enough problem. Yeah, <laughs> true, true. Well, and I, you know, I think sometimes it feels like you don't have the idea. I think that a book like organizes content and then you're like, like your poems aren't content, like acting like your poems are content is just really gross. Like to me, yeah, they're not. And I know, Instagram poetry has done some really cool things for poetry in terms of, you know, public readership and, um, you know, make it new and um, finding a new reader. I think it, there's some really good stuff, but the idea of poems as content makes me just vomit a little. Um, 
because they're more than that. They're way more than that, which is why like when I sit down with your book, I'm blown away by the fact that I can't carry your poems with me all the time. And that to be thinking about your poems, I literally have to sit down and read your book over again, like poems like live in that space between the reader and, and if I'm not with your book, I'm not with your book. And so it's so frustrating, especially like a reviews editor and I'm constantly reading. And, but if I'm not sitting with that book, I'm not with that book because it's not just, it's not just content. Like um, it's, it is about relationship and it is, it is about something more. And, um, and you'll never really like a poem is more complex and more layered and more lived and you'll read it different ways at different periods of your life, depending on the morning, whatever. Um, so it's just, I think that, and, and I think poetry resists being made content really well, frankly, it's fine. It's part of its modus operandi, right? Like yes. the, the poem should challenge you. I mean, I always tell you, you know, if it were efficient and easy, it's not a, a poem. I always tell my students, like, if someone said, I don't know, what what did you do last night? And you wrote them a poem in response, like, that would be a strange response. Mm. And, like, th- that would be, it'd be a response, but it wouldn't be the most efficient way to deliver the information. Poems are not about the efficient delivery of information. No. Relationships is exactly no. right. I, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Relationship is such a great way to think about it, because I don't think... And this isn't my idea. I've heard this before, but like a poem isn't done until someone reads it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I don't, it's not a diary entry. It's not a memo. It's not a journal article. It's, it's more, much more close to a letter than any of those things. Yeah. A poem, when I write a poem, it needs someone to read it. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's complete until someone has seen it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This feels like, well, oh, I did one more question before I ask you to read a final poem. Um, is that, do you find like talking about how it's not, poems aren't efficient and um, they're not about information. Do you find that you spend when you're writing short poems? Because, okay, I had very, I had a couple really tiny short poems, like two lines, you know, that were both cut from what Pecan Light and I really loved them and they got cut and <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. But do you feel like you spend more time, less time? Do little poems come to you very quickly? And then if they do, how do you feel like they're as valid as a poem that takes up more space that maybe quote unquote has more muscle that looks like more work? You know, like that's something I think about. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I don't know that I have a great answer to that question. Do sometimes they come quickly? I don't know. I'm not, not sure that they do. I do spend a a lot of times I, uh, I'll have the kernel of the idea and I'll like, like it's easy for me to think about a short poem, like have the kernel of the idea in the morning, say, and think about it all day and then the, that night and then the next morning, write the poem. Mm-hmm. A longer poem, uh, it's harder for me to do that because the longer poem, I actually have to be at the keyboard mm-hmm. writing for the poem to come out. And so sometimes the actual sitting at the keyboard part is a little quicker but the thinking about it, I don't think is any quicker than, than a longer yeah. poem. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know, do they, are they muscular? Do they have the same staying power? I don't know. I mean, if they're, they're not all landing with editors right now. And so it's, I think that there's something that is dismissible about the short poem. And I, I think yeah. that it would be hard for, I mean, I feel like this is, this is opens up the, this conversation to a whole different place, but like, I wonder if I might be able to get away with this because it's my fifth book in a way that I would never have been able to get away with it hmm. in, my, in my first book. Like, I don't know that I would, could I have, Yeah. like, is there, and not that I have built this great, a more IQE readership, but like, I do have some people who've read my poems and some people who've read my books and might be more inclined to bring that experience with my writing to these short poems yeah. in a way that if I were, had never published a book or had published in, very few poems and journals that the people wouldn't have that ex- experience with them. So I, which like opens up the blurs the line between getting published and creating art, which I, you know, I think there needs to be a line mm-hmm. between there blurs the line between capitalism and the capitalist mm-hmm. side of us where we have to like find an audience for our work and do that work mm-hmm. and the creating of the art. And I don't, I'm not creating art in order to sell it, but I do wonder if 
the fact that I'm at where I am in my poetry career, whatever that means, allows me to take this risk in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago, five years ago. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I do think there's an element, there's always an element of risk when you change, you know, like when you're like, Hey, I'm departing from this. And so that thing that people have loved you for, right. You're like, Oh, I'm doing like, come with me while I do this new thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but then I think also people love that, um, that, and that art is open to change, um, is something very exciting. Right. I mean, I'm not exactly Bob Dylan going electric, right. (laughs) (laughs) It's not quite that radical, but you know, and I, 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 I do think that these new poems, these short poems, even though they're not necessarily about Ariana Grande or Ward Cleaver or George Jetson, I do think my voice is still there. I do mm-hmm. think it's still me and I do think it's recognizable. Yeah. And yeah. so I hope it is at least. Yeah. Um, have you, you've read Suzanne Buffum? Yeah. Okay. Cause I was thinking about her. She has some incredible, I'm, I was thinking about the, you know, like, Maybe you want to, I, I maybe I shouldn't have even used that language of like the more muscular poem or whatever, like, um, but the bigger poem, right? Which I always feel like, um, I feel like I write a medium poem and I feel like editors pay attention to bigger poems um, more. It's like, oh, ooh, that's bigger. Like it literally, it's like the weight of the words on the page that there's something right. there, but the yeah. staying power of small poems and, you know, the powerfulness of haiku and, um, is incredible. And I think that's, you know, part of what Rupi Kaur taps into and Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that it's small and it, it can be memorized and remembered in a way that you cannot remember a column poem. You might remember lines, but right. Um, so it's, you know, definitely different animals and, and they behave very differently. Um, they do for sure. And, and I, you know, there's also, I mean, I, I do think editors, many editors, not all editors, and it's, there's such a, there's as many editors as there are poets in terms of like their aesthetic chase. But I do think that there's something about the kinds of poems I was writing in bad jokes, which are like, oh yeah, look, it's pop culture. Like there's like a hook here, right? And so like, it's gonna get you, it gets your attention. Then the poem still has to deliver, but like it, it begins with some built-in, you know, I, the, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the title. Okay, now I'm interested. I like Arnold Schwarzenegger, or I like thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, like, I'm I'm hooked from the beginning as a mm. reader in a way that like a short poem called, you know, Easter Prayer. Like, it's it's easy to like. I'm I'm still waiting for the hook. I don't. You haven't made me care yet because you haven't yeah. had the sort of flashy billboard that mm. says, "Hey, look at me. I'm writing about this this pop culture thing with a critical eye that you haven't seen before." Yeah. So I'm writing a four line, here's a four line poem called Easter prayer. I'm like, I don't know. I'm skeptical. <laughs> and, and, like, and so like, it, it just catches the eye differently. It yeah, catches it the reader's attention and the editor's attention differently. It does. Yeah. What about Easter wings? That's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Would yeah. you like to close us with a poem? Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I want to read, I guess, it's the next to last poem in the book. Um, it's uh, the, um, it's one of the poems about being a dad. And yeah, so it's on 104, if you're following along. <laughs> and it's called Childhood Goes Kaleidoscope, 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 Gun. We keep waiting to wake up and know what we're doing. We've learned to be grateful for any colored shard of glass not shaped like a bullet. We are driving in a blizzard, not a metaphor. We could die. I have a lot of responsibility here. And our daughter is telling us a ghost story. We're listening for any clues to the riddle that is her mind at 15. Her life has ceased to revolve around us. There are so many bullets. We've learned not to take these small moments for granted. In this story, the father of the children of her Sims character came to visit, refused to leave. She built a tiny room, lured him in, deleted the door. 30 game days later, he died. The story takes a long time to tell. Our son keeps interrupting to sing, we got the beat and talk about his plans for his new airsoft gun 
with the biodegradable ammo. Everything is so dangerous. There are no metaphors. It's our fault for giving him what he wanted. This world, its shattered edges. He has 2,000 pellets, a freshly charged battery, a friend to shoot. What more could a boy desire? She likes having the ghost around, she says, better now than when he was alive. And this sounds like a mostly okay ending, probably all we can ask. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm glad I had my mic off so my laughing did not interrupt <laughs> it, you. It, it helped to get me through reading the poem, seeing your, your face as you read. <laughs> so so yeah, I, I, this is a poem. I don't know. I mean, I, I like a lot of the poems in this book, but I'm really proud of this one. I feel like I I captured the uh, the complexity of the feelings and like that story that, I mean, this is a true story that she told us about this character in her game. And it just, oh, it just kills me. It just kills me every time thinking about this really dad does. who's a pest and she just locks him up and he dies. Okay. Oh my goodness. And, and when this poem was published and I posted it on Facebook and like the link to it in an American Poetry Review and uh, my daughter read it and she, came home that day from school and she asked my son, she said, did you see that poem dad published? He makes us look like psychopaths. <laughs> like, I don't think that's what it, I don't think that's the message of the poem, but. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> Parent goals. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness. She likes having the ghost around better than when he was alive. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. What a great conversation. I was in a really grumpy mood this morning, but this has revitalized me. So oh, I appreciate good. it. Oh, good. And for listeners, I hope you check out more of Amorak Huey's work at amorakhuey.com. And we'll have links to Amorak's poems and a link to purchase dad jokes from Sundress Publications in the show notes. Like Once again, thank you for listening.